Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Are you excited to be here this morning? Oh my, praise Jesus, huh? (laughs) Church, get on your feet, rise up. I love that song. Man, where is Carol? We have to do that one again. That That was just, oh my goodness. That's what a church in revival is all about. It's up and about doing the Father's business, and we're so excited to have each one of you here this morning, as well as welcome those of you that are viewing us online. Welcome to Liberty Bible. God's at work in some very unique ways, and we praise him and thank him, and I see my good buddy, Pastor David Preston. Would you please stand? I think, are you by yourself here this morning? The rest of the crew's coming a little bit later. You let them sleep in so you could come to the 9 o'clock service, see? He sets a good example, doesn't he? Yeah. We are so glad to welcome the Prestons to our ministry team, and we are thrilled that David and Allison and little Noel, and I think some of your family members are uh, here as well this weekend. But praise God for what he's up to. Uh, God is a God who is sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. He has everything all figured out. And we have a God in whom we can trust. I want you to keep on praying for Pastor Tim and Misty as they continue to wait on the Lord. This has been a very traumatic week for them. Uh, Not of their own doing, by the way, but uh, we need to just pray that God would bless them in a very special way uh, as they continue to wait upon him, as they begin to wrap things up there and as they look ahead to what God has for us. We don't have the official word yet, but God is at work in their lives in a very special way. And I want you to keep on praying for them every single day. Uh, You have no idea of the dynamics that have transpired this week that unfortunately have created lots more um, turbulence for their lives. And we're just praying that God would work in a very powerful way on their behalf. Uh, But let's keep on praying. The best is yet to be. We are a church that's in revival. We are a church that's moving ahead. And we believe that God has some of the best days ahead for Liberty Bible Church. I also want you to be praying, especially these next couple of weeks, for Pastor Kevin Cram. Uh, Pastor Cram is going to be going to the Middle East to visit many of our partners. You'll remember the Thanksgiving offering from a year ago. We supported the Uh, ministry in Lebanon, Beirut. Remember that explosion that had wiped out so many uh, buildings and had killed so many individuals. Uh, He's going to be in Lebanon. He's going to be in Jordan. He's going to be in Egypt with many of our uh, ministering partners. And so I want us to pray very specifically today for Pastor Kevin. He'll be leaving on Tuesday and will be gone for 11 days. So this is another way in which Uh, We're seeking to reach out to communicate the love of Jesus uh, to our partners and to be an encouragement. So pray for Kevin's safety and his protection and that God would use him in a very significant way. Now, this morning I want you to take your Bibles, please, and open them to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, Nick has already read this for us. I want you to keep your Bibles open to this particular passage Let's have a word of prayer for Pastor Kevin as he 
uh, takes off this week, that God would bless him and then that God would open our ears and our minds to the truth that he has for us today. Father in heaven, we do love you, we honor you, we adore you. You are great, you are greatly to be praised. There is no one like our God. We will love you and we will serve you. And our hearts have been strangely warmed today as we have uh, just been able to just worship you with a heart that's full of love and devotion to the King. You are worthy of all of our praise. You're worthy of all of our worship. There's not a single event that happens in our lives that escapes your notice. And Lord, we can't even begin, can't even begin to describe what we feel in our hearts as we gather for a time of worship and praise such as this. Our words are so inadequate to express our love to you who alone are worthy, who are alone to be praised. And so I pray that as we open up the word of God again today that our hearts would be in tune with you and with your Holy Spirit. Speak, Lord. We'll be careful to listen. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. A fire broke out in a small church in a Midwestern city some time ago. It was in a small town, and so everybody turned out to watch this fire that soon engulfed this little church. And basically, the firemen and everybody that was there, they were, they were all taken up and trying to save the church, but the church was ablaze. And since it was a small town and everybody knew everybody, why, the pastor was there, and he happened to notice... Uh, an inactive member who also was there. He hadn't seen that person in a long time. And so I went over to the person and he said, man, I've been missing you. I said, uh, where, where have you been for such, for such a long time? He said, and the member said, well, I've never seen our church on fire before. Well, <clears throat> you know, that's what happens sometimes. We, we just don't see God working the way we'd like to do and we get a little bit, you know, put off and, and we stay away. The church that we want to look at today, however, is a church on fire. It is a church in revival. It is a church that is experiencing the power and the presence of Jesus in some very unique and unusual ways. A church that is on fire is a church that is in revival. Now, a lot of people get nervous whenever they hear the word revival. And yet it's something that I believe we need to be thinking about, especially uh, as we enter a whole new season of ministry here at Liberty Bible Church. Uh, Dr. George Sweeting, who is the past president at Moody, had a very interesting article called uh, We Need a Great Awakening. And in that article, he talked about some of the misconceptions of revival. For example, number one, revival is not large crowds. Oftentimes we equate revival with large crowds. It is not large crowds. Uh, all of us, some of us maybe, have been in large evangelistic gatherings. Maybe it was a Billy Graham crusade. Maybe it was a Promise Keepers event where there were hundreds and thousands of people that were present. But large crowds do not produce revival. They are opportunities where we can come and hear the gospel and be refreshed and renewed. But large crowds in and of themselves do not produce revival. Number two, revival is not great preaching. Now, preaching is God's method of opening our minds and our consciences to the Word of God. And as the Apostle says, to the world, preaching is foolishness, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God into salvation. 
But great preaching does not produce revival. Preachers do not produce revival. That is something that the Holy Spirit does. And so revival is not large crowds. It's not a great preaching. And thirdly, it is not massive conversions. Now, indeed, when revival occurs, there are many who come to faith in Jesus Christ. But remember, revival is not primarily for the lost. It is for the saved. It is for those who have been part of the body for a long time to be renewed, to be re-energized, to be reinvigorated, to get back to that first kind of love that they once experienced, but for whatever reason uh, has been waning. And so revival in the truest sense of the word is helping God's people to get right with God. And when God wants to do something great in a church, he always begins with God's people. He always begins with us. He begins with each of our lives. And just like batteries need to be recharged and, and uh, you know, cars need to be refueled and all these other kinds of things, we as the body of Christ need to be revitalized. We need to get our focus and our eyes upon Jesus. And that's what makes all the difference in the world. And so this church that we want to look at today is much different from the other churches so far that we've looked at. Many of the other churches that we've looked at uh, are in deep trouble because they have allowed sin, they've allowed hypocrisy, they've left their first love, they have uh, not been true, authentic Christ followers. Uh, and last week, you know, we looked at this church that had lost its pulse. Uh, you remember when we looked at the church at Sardis last week, we found out that it had no, oh, no pulse, and the Lord pronounces an autopsy on that church. It's a dead church because it allows make-believe Christianity to creep into its ranks. And as a result, Sardis has no pulse, it has no power, it has no energy. It's cold and lifeless. It's just content to go through the motions of Christianity without experiencing and realizing the awesome power of God that is resident in the body. Do you understand that as Christ followers, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and it's the Holy Spirit at work within us that empowers us to do mighty exploits for God? We are saved not so that we can just sit back and coast into glory. We are saved so that we can be involved and energized to change the world that desperately needs the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the church that we want to study this morning is in distinct contrast to Sardis. The church at Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, uh, is a church that is experiencing life. Philadelphia is an ancient city. It was known today as Alashir in the country of Turkey. It prospers because of its vineyards and textile and leather industries. It was also located in an area that was dangerously volcanic. And in AD 17, the earthquake that destroyed Sardis also destroyed Philadelphia. And the emperor, the Roman emperor Tiberius, becomes a rebuilder and he rebuilds both Sardis and he rebuilds Philadelphia. Now, the church in Philadelphia, in contrast to Sardis, is warmly commended by the Lord. You'll remember that the Lord did not have any, any words of commendation for the church where he found no pulse. But like Smyrna, the suffering church, 
when we get to the church at Philadelphia, the Lord of the lampstands, the great consultant, he has nothing but commendation to share with uh, this particular church. Why? Because it is a church in revival. Not in the sense of big crowds, not in the sense of great preaching, not in the sense of massive conversions, but in the sense of authentic spiritual life. Now notice the text. Look at verse 8. He says, you have kept my word, you've not denied my name. Here is a church that has hung on tenaciously to the word of God and to Jesus Christ. Verse 10, you have kept the command to endure patiently, or he commends them for their patient endurance. I believe today that there is something about a church that is obedient to God and is an enduring church that can experience the blessing of God like nothing else. In fact, I am convinced that obedience and endurance are the key words in our lives as Christ followers. Because the more we obey the word of God, the greater will be our endurance. And the more we endure, the greater will be our responsiveness to the word of God when he calls us to obey in some of the hard things that are not real easy. Obedience and endurance, these seem to be characteristic of this church in revival. Now, one of the unique features of this letter is the use of vivid word pictures and figures of speech. In the Lord of the Lampstands, the master consultant, he employs three striking metaphors to convey a message to this church that evidences spiritual life and vitality. Now, what is a metaphor? A metaphor is simply a symbolic figure of speech used to compare something that is known and applying it to a spiritual or a scriptural truth. This morning, I want us to consider these metaphors that he uses with reference to a church in revival because I believe these are the kinds of, of settings in which God wants to do great things in our lives as the people of God. Now, before we take a look at the first metaphor, I want you to notice again the credentials of the Lord of the Lampstands. You'll notice that at the beginning of every one of these churches, he lays out truths about himself. This is the Son of God, remember, that is speaking. And now he identifies, notice how he identifies himself in verse 7. He said, I am the Holy One and the True One. The one who is examining the churches, particularly this church that's in revival, he reminds them that he is the Holy One of God and he speaks truth because God cannot lie. Remember, uh, uh, he's already identified himself uh, back in, uh, with the Pergamum and Thyatira that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who died and was resurrected. He is alive forevermore. This is the one that is reviewing the church. Now, the first metaphor he uses is a door. Uh, and he talks about this in verse 8. A door which is the opportunity of the church. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Which no one is able to shut. The tense there is perfect. I have set before you an open door. The effects are continuing. This door that I've opened remains open even today. 
It is an opportunity that he gives to the church. A door has been opened, and I've opened it for you, and no one can shut it. Now, in the Scriptures, an open door always refers to opportunity. When a door is closed, it signifies that that opportunity has uh, gone away. It's passed away, never again to return. A neglected opportunity is like a spoken word which cannot be recalled or like a speeding arrow which cannot be retrieved. John Stott, in his book, What Christ Thinks of the Church, says that this metaphor is used in two senses. First of all, there is the open door of salvation. Now, this is not the primary way in which the door is used here in Revelation. But Stott believes, and I tend to agree, that an open door of salvation is spoken of over and over and over again in Scripture, and so it merits our attention as we think about these open doors that are open to this church. The open door of salvation. You'll remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter in through the narrow gate, the narrow door, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus basically tells us in the passage that there are two gates, there are two doors. There is one door that is wide, and the masses go through it. But that wide door leads to destruction. But then he also says there is a narrow door, and very few find it, but those who do go through that narrow door, the door of salvation, they experience life and the hope of seeing Jesus face to face. People today may have already walked through that wide gate. But if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can walk through the narrow gate and experience the power of transformation. You see, this is what the church is called to do. We are to do everything to be responsive to open doors. I wish you could be in some of our staff meetings. It is amazing. Almost every week somebody tells us about an open door that they've gone through and people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see the the roses up here on communion Sundays. Over and over again, There are people that are coming to Jesus Christ because many of you are sharing your faith, our staff is sharing their faith, and God is enabling many to walk through this open door of salvation, this narrow gate. It's fabulous. It's what the church is all about. There are so many that have been walking through that wide gate that leads to destruction. And one of the reasons God calls the church to be the church is to introduce people to that narrow door that can lead to life, life everlasting. Now, the second door is the door of service. And this is the great door that has been opened to the church in Philadelphia. He's speaking here to God's people. Notice again verse 8. He says, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Verse 10, since you have kept my man to endure patiently the Lord is encouraging these believers who are experiencing life to continue to serve because as they continue to serve and as they continue to hang on tenaciously to the word of God they are building spiritual muscle that enables them to endure any kind of opposition that may come to them now one of the reasons 
we need to develop this kind of endurance is because if we're going to walk through that narrow door, if we're really going to live for Jesus Christ, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And this is what many people stumble after. They think after they come to, to, to Jesus Christ that everything's just going to be, oh, it's just going to be easy peasy. No problems, no difficulties, no, no issues that way. It's just the opposite. When you actually put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, all of us, we have a target on our back. And what he's saying to this church in Philadelphia, he said, you have kept the word you have not denied my way my, my name even though you've been pressured to do so and in the process you have developed a patient endurance you see it after we come to faith in Jesus Christ it's so important that we keep on serving him it's an ideal time to spread the gospel now it's very interesting when he speaks about this to the church at Philadelphia the Roman peace is in effect and people are starting to question the traditions. They're asking questions. They are, the, the Holy Spirit through the Roman peace has prepared them to think about things they had never thought before. And so the Lord of the Lampstand says, I'm opening up all kinds of opportunities. Now's the time to be sharing your faith. I'm convinced that God has taken us through this pandemic he has given to us a blank sheet of paper. We have an opportunity as a church, as a community of Christ followers, to walk through this open door of service and ministry that God's opened up to us. There are all kinds of opportunities that are just waiting for us to respond to. I can't begin to tell you all the opportunities that are right in our hands right now at Liberty Bible Church. Through all the, the things that have been difficult for us to deal with, God is opening up doors of service and opportunity that are beyond anything we could ever imagine. And it's all because, by God's grace, we've walked through that door of salvation and we are developing steadfast endurance as we walk through the door of service. Now, to take advantage of these opportunities, we have to overcome obstacles. Just remember that whenever God presents us with an opportunity, there will always be obstacles to those opportunities. But we need to face those, optical, those, those obstacles with optimism. Now, there's a world of difference between the optimist and the pessimist. The pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. The, the, the optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. The optimist is one who invents the airplane. The pessimist is one who invents the parachute. You, you, see, you see, see, God wants us to be optimists when we begin to think about all the opportunities. Just stop and think about this. Stop and think about your neighbors, for example. What would happen if we would just start being Jesus to our neighbors? If we just began to invite them over, just for coffee, just to start building relationships with our neighbors. Do you realize during this pandemic, so many people have been tied up in their homes and they're so anxious to have a relationship. People come into the church brand new. First thing they ask us, is there a small group? 
People are longing today for relationships. And the more digitized we become as a culture, the need for relationships becomes greater and greater. Let me tell you, the opportunities to expand our small group ministry, to reach out through sports, I can't even begin to tell you the opportunities that our new, uh, new Hope Counseling Center has. We have a waiting list a mile long. We <laughs> there are people that are anxious to get help. We have the tools. We have the resources. Opportunities are all around us. And so we have to face those opportunities and when you have obstacles you have to overcome them you don't let the obstacles get the best of you now it's interesting here in this passage that the Lord of the Lampstands talks about some of the obstacles that this little church faces number one it's a small church notice in verse 8 he says they have little power they have little strength its influence is limited it may have been composed of people who were of the lower social economic class. They did not come from the influential higher classes of Roman citizenry. But that's no excuse for not serving. He says, even though you're small, you don't have a lot of, of influence. At least you don't think you have a lot of influence. There are all kinds of opportunities that are right in front of you. I want you to keep on seizing them. Number two, he says the church is experiencing opposition. Verse 9, notice. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and down, down, down before your feet. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking here about the Jews who were upset that the gospel was being presented to the Gentiles and that they could only become a true Christ follower if they followed the legalism of circumcision. And... He calls these Judaizers, he calls these people that are adding law to grace, he calls them the synagogue of Satan, but he says because you're patient endurance, there's going to come a time when they will bow down at whose feet? The Christian's feet, and they will what? Look at the text. They will learn, I love this, that I have loved you. Put that in chartreuse. They will learn that I have loved you. People who do not know Jesus oftentimes have no idea how much God loves them. And that is one of the opportunities that we have to be so authentic and real that those that do not know Christ, they learn through our example that God loves them. That is powerful. That is amazing. Aren't you thankful that God loves you this morning? I mean, it's the love of God that compels us to go out into the highways and hedges and reach people for Jesus Christ. It's the love of God. But those out there who do not know him, they need to learn about God's love. They need to learn it from us. It's the power. The power of his love. They will learn that I have loved them. Powerful. In fact, Paul puts it this way. He says in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then number three, the church is facing an hour of trial. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, 
I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, admittedly, this is a controversial verse because of the way some scholars over the years have used it either to promote a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture of the church. Now, I don't have time to get into all those nuances this morning. The key phrase is simply this in verse 10, and we're just going to stick with this text. He says, I will keep you from the trial, the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world. That particular phrase, keep from, is only used here in Revelation 3.10 and only one other place in the Scripture In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 15 where Jesus says this to his disciples, quote, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect, that you keep them from the evil one. The point is very clear when you just look at the text. He's not speaking about removing us because of this great tribulation or whatever is going to come upon us. But he is saying, I am pledging myself to keep you and protect you through that. I'm protecting them as they make their way through the world. Do you realize that every time we step out in faith and do something that is hard, but something that we know God wants us to do, he's protecting us. He is taking care of us. He is looking after us. We never face those battles alone. The master is by our side. He goes on to say in this passage that there's coming a time when God's wrath is going to be poured out on the world in judgment. And he says in verse 11, I am coming soon. And relating this to Christ's second coming, And now this door that has been opened up to them, there may have been some of those there in Philadelphia that began to reason this way. Well, you know, if Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set everything in order, then I just can kind of sit back and coast and just wait for that that coming of Jesus. I, I don't have to do anything. I mean, if he's coming back and he's going to set up his kingdom, why should I witness? Why should I go through this door? Why should I be active? I hear that even today. There are folks that are talking about the fact that Jesus is coming back again. I mean, I've got books in my library back in 1980, 84, 88, 90. Jesus is going to come by this certain date, and so we just kind of sit back and dream of pie in the sky and a sweet bye-bye. It's not what he's saying here. He's saying in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, we need to be more eager than ever to walk through the door of salvation and service. Now is not the time to keep silent about our faith. Now is the time to verbalize our faith because the king is coming. We don't know when. We don't know the day or the hour. But this is a time for the church to be active and sharing the gospel because Jesus is coming again. Why is he delayed he's coming? I really don't know. Other than he wants the maximum number of people to hear his name. So now is not a time for us to just kind of 
console ourselves in the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back and just do nothing. He wants us to be ever ready to give an answer to everyone that asks us about the reason of the hope that is within us. He also, notice, encourages them in verse 11. What does he say? He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. In other words, there's a crown for the soul winner. There's a crown for those that serve. And he is saying, I want you to be diligent in serving. I want you to be diligent in getting the gospel out. I don't want you to lose your crown because of inactivity. I want you to keep on getting fired up for Jesus. I love this. We could sing that every week. I, I, my, my, my. I just am so excited to see some life in the body of Christ. It's been there all along. We need to rekindle it. It needs to be re-energized and refueled. God's got some fabulous things ahead for us at Liberty Bible Church. Now, let's move on to number two, the key. Who opens the door? Who has the key? Notice verse 7. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Christ sets, behold, before this church open doors of opportunity because he himself is the key. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been locked outside your house? Or you've locked yourself out of your car? A couple of months ago, <clears throat> I was driving back to Fort Wayne, and it was really cold. And I didn't have any jacket with me. And just before I got home, I stopped to throw away some trash. And I left the car running, and my phone was in the car, Everything was in the car, and the wind blew my car door shut, and it locked. This was about 11.30 at night. Now, what do I do? There's nobody around. I'm freezing. Fortunately, as I began walking toward my house that was probably about three miles away, somebody picked me up and uh, took me back, called uh, 911, so he could get me back in my car. I was so glad when they had a key and it opened that car door. Man. Now, let me tell you this. Jesus is the one that holds the keys. He's the one that holds the keys of Hades and hell. He also holds the keys of opportunity. And Jesus is the one you don't have to pray for opportunities. You just need to be ready to walk through the opportunity when the master opens the door. He has the keys. Now, what I want to say is simply this. Because Christ holds the keys, we need to understand that we must be responsive to his nudges. Now, the foundation of Christ's authority is spelled out very clearly here in verse 7. He says, I am the Holy One and the True One. You see, Christ, who holds the keys, 
has authority over these opportunities because of his character. He is holy, he is true, faithful, trustworthy, and reliable. He cannot lie for he is God. And what he declares indeed comes to pass. So the foundation of our authority is the credentials of Christ himself. And then notice what the function of his authority is. He holds the key of David. Notice verse 7. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And this hastens back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, where it is used of Elikim, who is made a steward over King Hezekiah's household in Jerusalem. And Eliakim has the keys to the king's home. Nobody can enter the king's residence without the keys. And you have this in Isaiah 22 and verse 22. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. You see, Eliakim foreshadows Jesus Christ. For Christ is the head of God's household, the body of Christ. And he gives authority to those who belong to him. Jesus said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And through Jesus' death upon the cross, he unlocks the door of salvation because he is the key. He died so that we might live and he also is the one who unlocks the doors of service. In fact, if you will go through the book of Acts, very interesting. The Bible tells us, and Paul speaks specifically about how on his various missionary journeys, God would open doors and he would close doors. Why? Because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. For example, in Acts 14.27, he gathers the church together, and the Bible says he reported all that God had done through him, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16.8-9, toward the end of his third missionary journey, I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened up to me, and there are many who oppose me. If he was writing to Liberty Bible Church, he would say, a great door has been opened to Liberty Bible Church to impact Northwest Indiana with the gospel of Christ. Do you believe that? I do. I believe there is going to be an influx of people coming into this area over the next number of years. God is taking us through all the ups and downs of ministry to prepare us in ways we've never been prepared before to impact Northwest Indiana. He is opening these doors. He holds the key in his hand. And we need to be ready to walk through. We need to be ready to move when God moves. Now, on other occasions, remember Paul wanted to go into Bithynia, and the Bible says what? God closed the door. See, God is the sovereign one. He opens doors. He closes doors. He has the keys to eternal life. Because God has given us and Christ has given us his authority, when he nudges us to walk across the room and share our faith, when he encourages us to talk to one of our co-workers about Jesus, 
when he encourages us to stop what we're doing and take some time to invest in a discouraged friend, let me tell you, be sensitive to the nudges of the Holy Spirit because God uses those nudges to empower us to walk through doors that not we have opened, but that he has opened for the glory and honor of his son, Jesus Christ. I can't begin to tell you how strategic, listen to me carefully, how strategic this church is in this community. It's not been by accident that it was planted some 90 what? How many, Carl? There's no accident that a little Sunday school group was planted in this particular area some 94 years ago. There have been those who have sweat blood and tears and prayers for this body. And we are standing on their shoulders. They walked through incredible doors. They faced unbelievable opposition. But we are here today because we have a legacy of faithfulness. Do you understand this? A legacy of faithfulness And what we need to do is keep on walking through these doors of opportunity because there are hundreds and thousands of children and young people and older people who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. And God is opening it up to us. It's amazing. It is amazing. Jesus holds the keys. So he opens the door. He is the one who allows us to either walk through the door or for the door to be shut, but he's the sovereign one, and we respond to him. Now, the last metaphor is he talks about a pillar, which speaks about the security of the conqueror. Those who walk through the open doors of salvation and service are responsive to the key and submit to his sovereignty. Notice in verse 12, it says, they will become, verse 12, a what? A pillar in the house of my God, which speaks of the security of the conqueror. Notice verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a what? A pillar in the temple of my God. This is very significant. A pillar is something that speaks of strength, that stands tall no matter what. And it's very unique because, remember, Philadelphia is in a place where there were many earthquakes and there was lots of destruction. But he says to the people of God, he says, as you conquer, as you walk through these doors, I'm going to make you a pillar. You're going to stand for all of eternity in the house of my God. All God's people said, oh my. Now, I've been a pastor a long time. I've learned over the years that there are two kinds of church members. There are the pillars, and then there are the caterpillars. You know, the folks who kind of creep in, creep out. You never know if they're going to be there or not. He's not talking about, we're not going to, he's not talking about the caterpillars here. 
He's talking about being a pillar in the house of my God. God wants to reward every single one of us who are true to him amidst all the opposition. He says, we're going to become pillars. We're going to stand for all of eternity with Christ in his kingdom. I love this, don't you? I mean, this is what causes me to rejoice. Even though they face misunderstanding and opposition, they become pillars in the temple of my God. They stand tall when all else has fallen. Those who risk their name for Christ in his gospel are given three permanent names or marks of identification. Look at verse 12. First of all, he says, I will write on him the name of my God. We will be sealed with God's awesome name. We enter the kingdom not with our name, but with the name that has been given to us by God. Number two, I will write on him the name of the city of my God. And that city is the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. We are citizens. We have the name of Jerusalem. We are citizens of God's heaven. We have his name inscribed on us. We are destined for heaven. And I love this. He says, I will write on him my new name. Now, you may want to jot this down. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 62, 2 and 3. You will be called by a new name that the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands, a royal diadem in the hand of our God. And notice, because they are given a new name, they're also going to see his face. Look at this. A new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Our given name is not our eternal name. God is going to give to every single one of us an eternal name. He's destined us for an eternal city and the seal of God's name is on us if we are conquerors. And we've walked through the door of salvation and we have given ourselves to proclaim the gospel and seize every opportunity that is presented to us. There are many churches today in America, they've had incredible opportunity right in front of them. But they've let it go. When I was a district superintendent and oversaw some 250 churches, I would see churches oftentimes that had incredible potential. They were strategically located there was access to them. At one time, they had been fireballs for Jesus. But somewhere down the line, they stopped looking for opportunities and they spent all their time focusing on themselves. That's not Philadelphia. 
Philadelphia is a church on fire. Is it a church that has stepped up to the plate and said, no matter what the cost, I'm going to seize every opportunity that God gives to me. Friends, that's what we need to be doing. I don't know about you. (laughs) I've said this to the staff many times. I can't even begin to keep up with all the opportunities I see right in front of Liberty Bible Church. And with new leadership and with how God is at work, let me tell you, there is nothing that will hold us back except our own inability to trust God for what we believe is impossible. God is doing something great. Let's seize the opportunities for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us to introduce people to the Savior. Help us to have a passion for the lost. Help us to get over ourselves and stand up for Jesus. Help us to be a perked-up church, just like Philadelphia, for the glory of Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.